I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Well done for uncovering Whitehall Sources, your new insider podcast on politics, brought to you in association with The Resident, hotels with excellent rooms in exceptional locations, and where thoughtful teams deliver heartfelt hospitality. A bit like number 10, though evening drinks are from Justerini and Brooks with The Resident, not wheeled in in a suitcase. Thanks to The Resident, your favourite podcast starts now. We will deliver, we will deliver, we will deliver. You're prepared to be unpopular, aren't you? Yes. Yes, I am. Are you absolutely committed to abolishing the 45 pence tax rate for the wealthiest people in the country? Yes. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. I'm Callum McDonald. I'm Kirsty Buchanan. And I'm Oscar Edgerow. This week then on your brand new politics podcast that takes you behind the door of Number 10 Downing Street. Well, the King seemingly has his say on how things are going. Promise you, Majesty. Your Majesty. Lovely to see you again. Thank you. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Anyway, no. Oh dear, oh dear, anyway. Plus, in policy, we're feeling fiscal once again. There are not any plans to reverse uh, any of the uh, tax measures announced on in the growth plan. One question we are desperate to get the answer to is, what is the last thing we need? Mr Speaker, I think the last thing we need is a general election. Ah, well, that clears that up then, doesn't it? Although there is one persistent and inescapable other question on the go as well. Who voted for this? Who voted for this? Who voted for this? Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for finding us. I hope you've subscribed. I hope you're following the podcast by now as well. If not, do that. You can also find us on social media. Just search Whitehall Sources. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. We're on TikTok. And online, you'll get special extra clips. You'll be able to see us in full HD as well. Uh, You can get in touch as well on social media. Or you can email us anytime. The inbox is always open. In fact, it is open right now. 
the email address is hello at whitehallsources.com if you would like to get in touch. We would love to hear from you. You can analyze what we're saying. You can become one of our sources. Tell us where you are and what title you would like to join Whitehall Sources, the podcast. It is such a pleasure to have you there. Welcome to episode number one. Kirsty and Oscar, hello. Um, I was really worried last week as I lay on my sun lounger in Ibiza that uh, the Conservative Party conference imploding meant that all the drama would have happened before we started the podcast. But here we are, Kirsty. the drama continues. It does indeed. It, it, every day is a, is a fresh hell for the Prime Minister. Um, she went to the 22 committee last night to try and calm the rebellious backbenches and uh, some of the briefing that came out afterwards was about as bad as I've ever heard. It was described as funereal. Uh, my favourite was unspeakably bleak. Uh, Robert Halfen, who's a highly respected backbench MP, who's been the chairman of the Education Select Committee for many years, said that she had trashed the Conservatives' record uh, as a party for the for the working man. And uh, you know, obviously, Robert Halfen is a very famous kind of blue collar conservative. Uh, it was, you know, if this is her charm fence, if I think round one is uh, is not going that well. <laughs> yeah. uh, well. We'll talk more about um, the 1922 committee and indeed the charm offensive, which is a concept that I'm fascinated by. Um, Oscar, in terms of your own assessment as well, I mean, you worked with Boris Johnson. Does this feel like, does it feel like the end of days a bit? You you really battle with that. You, you, you almost, the media, it's really interesting, the media... I think at times try and create a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I remember, you know, you'd have news organisations, news channels um, around these 1922 committees. And actually just in general, when Boris was going through tough times, you know, they'd be posting articles, you know, saying, you know, what, you know, the next step, what what do ex-prime ministers do once their careers are over? And they, I, you do sometimes feel like the media do try and get the self-fulfilling prophecy. They try and get the ball rolling before it well and truly is. And part of that, I sometimes think, is being quite selective over uh, the briefings. You know, oh, you know, you, and it's all over Twitter. You'll just see some journalists will go, oh, you know, I've just had a you know, a really well-respected backbencher tell me that, you know, Liz's days are up. And, and and you do sometimes think, how selective are they being right now? Having said that, <laughs> having said that, that is sometimes the wishful thinking that you have once you're absolutely in number 10 and you're in the eye of the storm. When you just look at the sheer tone of things at the moment, you, you have to accept the reality and it does, as remarkable as it does sound, it does feel like days are a bit numbered. Gosh. I have to say, I have to take up on this. Um, I, I'm a former journalist myself, so I'm not just riding to, <laughs> to the media for the for the sake of it when I <laughs> I say was about that, to do it, so you go on, Kirsten. You know, look, I, I went to conference and, and what, you know, what few MPs had actually turned up for Conservative Party conference, the mood was uh, sulphurous, depressed, uh, mm. angry. Uh, if anything, I think perhaps the media might be underplaying the current situation just a little bit. Uh, it's certainly hitting the right tone of it. I've never known anything like it. That Conservative Party conference was a complete breakdown in discipline and unity. And 
everybody I spoke to, everybody I spoke to said, we cannot go on like this. Uh, something has to give. Mm. Okay, I want to just mention this podcast, of course, the whole point of what we're doing here is to bring you uh, behind the scenes, as it were, into Number 10, into Whitehall, and hear from those who have actually worked there, who have been there, who have done that. Kirsty and Oscar are two examples of that. We put your CV on the trailer that we put out a couple of days ago, um, but just for those who are who have missed that two minutes and 53 of wonderful promotion, um, just a quick bit of CV from both of you, your credentials. Why should we listen to you? Just remind us how influential you are, Kirsty. <laughs> well, if you, if you look at my social media, it says I give advice for a living. Hard to say if anyone's heeding it. Um, I was a I was a lobby hack for uh, many many years. Worked in uh, worked on a national newspaper as a political editor, and then I jumped for the fence. Um, <laughs> and the shark. And I ended up <laughs> uh, and I ended up working for Liz Truss when she was Justice Secretary. And after that, I worked at number 10 for Theresa May when we tried valiantly and singularly failed to deliver Brexit. <laughs> but hey, Oscar then picked up the mantle and, and you worked for Boris Johnson who got Brexit done famously, Oscar. What's, give us your CV. Well, I can't take much credit for that um, because I uh, came into to number 10 to work for Boris um, only in the last year um, of his time at number 10. Um, but I've been really, really fortunate, I have to admit, and... Uh, potentially I'm a bit of a chance in a way, but I've managed to surround myself with, you know, some of the, the top people in comms um, to, uh, over the last, I guess, you know, three or four years, um, mainly crisis communications in the private sector before working at number 10. And there was no bigger crisis communications job in some ways. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been quite a whirlwind for me in that sense. Mm, absolutely. Uh, a couple of things, just before we crack on with, with the politics of today, a couple of things that I want to clear up. I've so far avoided using the phrase special advisors or more pertinently, the phrase SPAD, because I just want to understand if anybody actually, in reality, does anybody actually use the word SPAD? Yeah. <laughs> Do you, is it used in like Whitehall yeah. and in Downing? Like, yeah, to refer absolutely. to one another oh, as yeah. spads? Yeah. So you, there's there's two types of spads for for anyone listening. There's policy spads who uh, are usually hired uh, because of their expertise in a certain field, and they help the department shape and guide the policies that the department has been asked to deliver. Um, and then there are media spads, and their job is loosely to promote uh, the brand of the principal that you're working for, the Secretary of State you're working for, the Prime Minister you're working for, to help shape their messages, to prep them for media interviews, to prep them for PMQs, uh, and to genuinely sort of work on reputational risk and manage what's coming down the, the pike, as it were. The next thing I would just want to ask, by way of, of getting started, and Oscar, let's start with you. Do you... Do you think fondly of your days walking through the world's most famous door? Is that something that you liked? Well, this may not reassure listeners or, or you know, the members of the public, but I, I was I was terrified initially. I have to be completely upfront and honest. But I presumed that I was going to be the least experienced and the youngest person in there. And I was quite taken aback by just how young the team was, how young special advisors tended to be. I think that may surprise members of the public and listeners. I think they'll presume that special advisors are quite long in the tooth and, you know, vastly experienced as they do tend to be in charge of or, you know, advising on some pretty important stuff. 
But I do remember walking around that building and going, my God, <laughs> I'm really into the deep end at the moment. Um, admittedly, at the time I joined, which was kind of February, if we think back to that, there was a lot going on with the Prime Minister. They were pretty choppy waters. Um, I think after a while, it probably took me a good few weeks to stop walking around the corridors going, oh my God, oh my God, I'm in number 10, I'm in number 10, I'm in number 10, and actually just concentrate on the job in hand. That's a very, very honest answer. Mm. Um, <laughs> mm. But, but that, that, that was my experience. But I get that. And Kirsty, I wonder if that's relatable because it's, there is such a spotlight and such a focus and there must just be a feeling actually, maybe it never wears off of walking in, as I say, that behind that door and just going, oh my days, I'm, I'm actually here. I joined after the 2017 general election, uh, which uh, had left the Prime Minister Theresa May very weakened. Um, at the time I joined, you know, people were saying we give her, a, you know, a week, two weeks, she'll be lucky to last a month, etc. So on one level, I kind of walked in without that kind of weight of expectation and burden on me because, you know, I thought well, I could be out in a, in a month. Um, but it's true, you never... You never lose the uh, sense of, of sort of slightly surreal sense of being in Downing Street. Um, but I think the leader sets the tone. And I think for Theresa May, because she was a woman of, of great integrity and decency, I think, you know, it, we were always mindful of the importance of the role um, and to live up to the importance of the role because she was mindful of the importance of, of her role. Uh, and I think, I think there was some of that. And there were, you know, you are also uh, caught by the quality of the people around you. I mean, the press, obviously, I'm a media spad. So the people that I dealt with in the civil service from the press office were exceptional, exceptionally talented people. They mm. were quite young, but they were exceptionally talented. The policy unit, the political unit, these people are incredibly bright. Um, uh, and it was a it was genuinely a privilege at the risk of sounding too po-faced, it was genuinely a privilege to work with these people. And mm. because when we were there, <clears throat> pretty much everybody hated us. The media hated us, half of our party hated us, the other half hated us for a different reason. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was quite bonding, you know. We were, uh, we didn't have a sort of siege mentality, but we had a kind of, you know, there was a camaraderie that built up on it because everybody hated our Brexit. <laughs> Um, and so actually they were in some ways, not just the most privileged, but in, in a lot of ways, some of the happiest times of my life, of my working life. I was really taken by the, um, it, was, it, it was frustrating at times because at points, the government, we, we got into a bit of civil service bashing, uh, you know, the blob and, and all that kind of stuff. And that at times did slightly cut against what I was experiencing day to day, you know, kind of to Kirsty's point, the civil servants that I work with were amazing. You know, I used to, in my head, I, I just kind of thought they were like AI, you know, they would come to you with all the information, just vast knowledge, professionalism. So I was really taken aback by that. I have to say, and I can't, again, I can't really take any personal credit for it, but in terms of Boris, I think the advisors he had around him from day one, and there were a few of those, 
who stayed the course whilst I was there. I think they did a really, I think they were really good in this, in, and maybe this is something that isn't quite happening at the moment. They were really good at reminding him that there is more to political life than number 10 and actually keeping his radar and keeping in touch with normal people out there in the country. So I was also impressed by the legacy that a lot of those advisors, I think, had left on Boris. I mean, he is kind of naturally quite good at that mm. himself. So those are the two things I, I was taken by uh, when I first started working there as well. And it's these experiences then that are going to help us discuss what on earth is going on right now. And I, I suppose perhaps today, Thursdays, when we're recording, it's the 13th of October. And what seems to be building is this just real feeling of where can Liz Truss, where can Prime Minister Liz Truss actually turn next? Because day after day after day, she seems to be getting whacked from all sides. And most notably, and most recently, it's the 1922 Committee, which is of course made up of Conservative MPs. The Financial Times and The Guardian quote one MP is describing Wednesday night's meeting and the mood as funereal. Uh, another saying it was unspeakably bleak. Um, it was like someone trying to light a fire using a magnifying glass, using damp wood in the dark. And I just, in terms of th those messages, Kirsty, that is, you know, that is, that must be so stressful when you, as an advisor, wake up on Thursday thinking, goodness me, that happened last night. Where do we go from here? Yeah, I mean, I almost feel like I, I want to watch this government through my fingers. It's become that kind of that kind of painful to, to view. Um, no, you know, a night like that, you come in, you sit around, you regroup, right? Um, I mean, should you be resetting and relaunching and regrouping barely a month into a, a into your premiership? No, you shouldn't. But we are where we are, um, and you'll be looking for. Uh, ways to regain the grip. So, so what's happened, having uh, been taken over by events, is the government has lost grip. And the reason it feels like it's being buffeted from all sides is because it's completely on the back foot. Governments that are in control lead the agenda, lead the news stories, and, and have the grip that drives forward the news cycle. What's happened here is the news cycle is driving the government rather than the other way around. How do you regain that grip? Well, the reality is, until you uh, move forward, and I suggest that you know, if they want my unwanted asked for advice, I would suggest you need to move forward this medium-term fiscal plan. It's already been moved from November to October the thirty-first, and I always mm. say, look, if, if nature abhors a vacuum, then, then politics abhors it even more. And if you if you allow a sort of uh, a point in, in the horizon that is too far away, what happens is that just the narrative fills in that void between there and where you're trying to regain your grip. And that's what's happened here. And it happened to us a lot in, in number 10, because the delivery of our, or our attempt to deliver Brexit was always, you know, flashpoints that were, you know, a parliamentary flashpoints that were two or three weeks, you know, in the distance and in the making. And by the time we got there, the whole narrative had been, you know, consumed what we were trying to do and the, and the role we were trying to, you know, the pitch role we were trying to make. And that's what's happening here. If you don't move that forward, uh, frankly, that fiscal, um, that medium fiscal term uh, uh, plan could be the best plan in the world. It might have been 
consumed already by the narrative that's that's between here and when we get to October the 31st. And and that's the trouble with it. This is why it feels it's on the on the back foot, because once you've lost grip, it's really hard to regain it. Mm. That is so interesting to consider that the kind of the, the scheduling and the comms. And I think one thing that I was considering with this is that when you when you point towards an event like the horribly named medium-term fiscal event, whatever the heck it's going to be called, on the 31st of October, following the mini-budget that was not mini by any stretch of the imagination, when you point at an event and say, this is going to redefine and reshape everything, yeah. the, the importance that is then on that day, so as well as the, this vacuum, as you were highlighting, the, the importance that is then on that event it grows and intensifies even more, Oscar. And so I wonder then, actually, are you just setting yourself up for more failure at that point? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the same applies in terms of the dynamic of pointing to, you know, big reset events and big moments. I think the same applies to 1922 committees themselves. You know, because when you think about them, they are, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, in terms of how they actually bear out, you know, they're, they're kind of press conferences, you know, like if, they're not, they're not private um, they're not private uh, events where MP relationships can be built at all. It's all briefed out. Um, the feelings and mood amongst MPs is anonymously briefed out. The actual words from the Prime Minister at those meetings are briefed out. So I think a mistake often is to point towards the 1922 meetings as a time to reset and calm nerves. Really ultimately that work should be in an ideal world and again you know when we do this podcast we talk about these things i'm never coming at this from a point of kind of high ground or judgment at all because i know how difficult it is and you know we we experience so many of of the trappings and and difficulties that we're seeing now but but really that mp engagement uh and charm offensive as it's you know being called should be going on in private every single day um, not, you know, oh, we've got a 1922 committee meeting this week. You know, now's the time to calm the nerves. That's another red herring, in my opinion, um, and a mistake that does that does happen when prime ministers are, are really up against it. Mm-hmm. When was the last time you were charmed by Liz Truss, Kirsty? You worked with her. Was she, was she charming? <laughs> She's on a charm offensive this week. It depends what you mean by charm. I mean, look, she, her personality is not for everyone, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> right, right, okay, yes. Um, uh, look, I mean, I, I liked working with Liz. I thought she was good fun and I was fond of her. Um, but to give you a kind of instructional insight about what I what I found entertaining about working with her, I didn't know her when I started working for her as a media spec. And I was two days into the job. And we went to, uh, she was called before the Justice Select Committee and she hadn't been in the job very long either. Um, And I made uh, the mistake of sitting directly behind her and therefore in the view of the camera. Uh, While the (laughs) Select Committee went on, which turned into a a bit of a car crash, frankly, because she hadn't been in the job very long. um, And most of the questions she was being asked, she couldn't answer. Um, and I'm sat behind her trying to keep a straight face while reading some increasingly very funny things about this Justice Select Committee on Twitter. Um, and one of the things she was asked, her predecessor, Michael Gove, had a had a, a courts and prison reform bill. And she was asked if she was going to continue with this. 
And sometimes, and you'll know, obviously, because you've, you've seen her in action now, she has quite a, a peculiar speech intonation and she will make long pauses that uh, sometimes can be misread. And she paused because she was thinking carefully about the answer. And it was misread as a sign that she might actually ditch the bill. And the Justice Select Committee MPs picked up on this. And after the Select Committee and some of the other people that were with her said to were saying to Liz, oh, that was a really, really good appearance. And I thought, what, what Select Committee were you watching? And she ignored all this and she turned straight to me and she said, uh, did I make a mistake pausing over the bill? Um, and I, and this was like a pivotal moment for us because I'd only worked for her for two days. And I thought, well, you know, my job is to be honest. And I said, yes, you did, but I can fix it. And then I looked at her and she looked at me and sort of blinked and said, well, what are you still doing standing here? Go and fix it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that for me is Liz. She's, she's direct uh, and she's uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, I appreciate it's not for everyone, but I really liked it. Mm. When you're a special advisor, whether your principal is you know, a departmental minister or a prime minister, I, my own personal view is you should never lose sight of the fact that this person isn't your friend um yeah you are there ultimately if necessary to take a proverbial bullet for them so uh, mm. i liked the fact that there was never any particular blurring of the lines it suited me and no matter how many times i went around her house and had smashed avocado on toast with her kids even though i told her a million times i didn't like avocado no matter, you know, <laughs> well I, that's I'm, a I'm... bit north london townhouse <laughs> isn't it she's gonna be, she'll be getting a taxi to the bbc now. um uh, uh you know, I wasn't I wasn't a friend of hers. I was there to do a job for her and to you know and to and to do it well. And I and she didn't lose sight of that and I didn't lose sight of that. And actually that that worked for me. Mm. Um and you know, in private, when she's relaxed, she's, you know, good company, she's funny, she's engaging, she's bright, she's witty. But and you will have seen it, you know, when her back's up against the wall and the pressure is on. As a, as a communicator and a media performer, she starts to freeze up again. And actually, at the very moment when you, as a prime minister, you need to communicate best, which is under pressure, is the very moment when it plays to all her kind of worst excesses as a communicator, is that she she's not very fluid and she's not very emotive and she's quite stilted in her in her communication skills. And that's what we've seen playing out here. So. During the leadership contest, she got better and better and better at communicating because she's playing to a gallery. The media love her. She's in a Tory membership halls where she's, you know, she's long been a darling of the Conservative membership. Uh, and she got, you know, she, her delivery got smoother and smoother. Now the pressure is on. She's just kind of reverting back to this very kind of stilted delivery. And what we really need now is some clear narrative and some clear communication. We have got so much more to discuss on episode one of the podcast. Sit right there. For the next minute, you're going to be entertained and find out about some very, very important people. Do not move. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with The Resident. Hotels that are your home away from home in London and Liverpool. Resident hotels provide the perfect base to explore the city. Maybe you stayed in the resident in Liverpool for the Labour Party conference just a few weeks ago, or you may be looking for a base from which to explore London. You might even be on a political pilgrimage to Whitehall and Downing Street, inspired by this very podcast. 
Whitehall Sources brings you the inside info on politics. The Resident brings you insider info on your chosen destination. Go to residenthotels.com to become a member and secure exclusive rates, and the Resident teams will support you throughout your stay. Well done, you passed the test, you sat out the minute, and you were rewarded with some important information. And just a quick couple of bits of admin for you. You know by now that the email address is hello at whitehallsources.com and we want to welcome you in as our sources. Wherever you are listening around the world, have your say on the podcast. Become our source for hot takes or perhaps our source on a specific area of interest to you, Scottish politics. Or maybe, maybe you could be first to claim the title as our Worcestershire source. Do you get it? Uh, Sorry. This week, as we get started and as we get to know one another, perhaps you could email us as you listen now. Email us with a prediction of what we'll be talking about next week. Now, get these in soon, because if you try and pretend you've done a prediction after something's happened, we will find you out. We'll be recording on the 20th of October. That's next Thursday. And we'll see how accurate you are. So the email address, hello at whitehallsources.com. Or if you're feeling particularly brave slash modern slash millennial, send us a voice message. The email address is the same, hello at whitehallsources.com. And by the way, if you do actually work in and around Downing Street and Whitehall, you can become an actual Whitehall source. Anonymity is available on request. What is it like in there? What is happening? You can email hello at whitehallsources.com and provide some sort of verification that you are who you say you are. Uh, We're on social media as well. Just search for Whitehall Sources to keep in touch with all we're up to on the podcast. Let's get back to the conversation. As we see the days go by where forecasts are bad, the Institute for Fiscal Studies saying public spending is going to need to be cut by £62 billion to fund the mini-budget. You know, we talk about this 1922 committee. We talk about the charm offensive. I mean, Boris Johnson was was Prince Charming, was he not? And did, did he ever have a successful charm offensive in your, in your experience, Oscar? Did the charm offensives ever work? Because I just wonder, with a charm offensive, surely you have to strategize about who you're charming and, it, and, and adapt accordingly. Because is it the public or is it your own MPs or is it, you know, in the case of Liz Trust, does she need to try and charm the, the Bank of England? Or, do you know what I mean? There are so many different focuses here to try to get back on yeah. side. Well, I think you've almost answered your own question. I mean, there are so many, so many audiences that you have to try and connect with and appease. I think with Boris a lot of the time was trying to not coach him too much because I think the natural ability that he does have, to, and again, you know, as Kirsty said about Liz, you know, not, not for everyone, obviously, but by and large, the ability that Boris had to connect with voters who would never normally vote conservative. He'd even connect with MPs. He probably didn't particularly like him, but kind of got the, well, you know, the guy, you know, historically has been a winner for us. I'm willing to turn a blind eye to X, Y, and Z. Obviously that ran out of road, of course, in the end. Um, So with Boris, it was a case of, if you tried to coach him too much, I think we felt, you'll lose that star quality. And there was a period of time. um, I mean, I I don't know if you remember the the Beth Rigby interview, uh, where it was just around the party gate period of time he was behind a face mask it was about 13 minutes long 
and he was in the corridor of some hospital and he did that spark that we associate with Boris had kind of left him. And I think much of, to get the best out of someone like Boris, you do want them to feel free uh, and loose and natural. And I think MPs by and large in those 1922 committee meetings responded well to that with Boris. Um, of course, as we know, as it turned out, there that did run out of that the road did run out on that i think the most charming i've seen boris actually and this is something that i and i was part of i think a mistake in some ways is that the public wouldn't necessarily know this about him and maybe we didn't communicate this well enough with boris or maybe because of his time as mayor uh you know we and 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 kind of how how popular he relatively was then we kind of thought Oh, Boris is liked. Boris is liked. And we didn't really feel the need to refresh and update that, you know, years and years later. But I remember that it was before, I think it was before the energy strategy. And, you know, you had, you know, the Chancellor, uh, Business Secretary Quasi at the time. And they were really trying to hammer out the finer details of this before the launch day. And we were on a visit and it was... Uh, it, it was for people with really, really severe learning learning difficulties... Uh, and it was a brilliant uh, scheme, a community scheme, where they were um, given work. You know, they were making kind of tools, hairbrushes, all kinds of stuff. And we went to this factory where they were working. And Boris, you know, we were tapping him on the shoulder saying, oh, no, we've got the energy strategy tomorrow. We kind of need to get off. We need to get this done. And Boris was was absolutely, no, I'm having a cup of tea. I'm chatting to these people. I'm spending time with them don't distract me. And that warmth and that connection that I don't think people always associate with him. I don't think I, you know, it's, I don't think it was communicated that well. And I remember that was one of the first experience I had with him. And I kind of went, Oh my, you're so different. You, this is, this is, you, you are really connecting and you're warm and you, you have empathy. And uh, so that was the first time I was taken in by him. And that speaks to the, the the charm, you know, and the and the need for that, and perhaps you know the use of the word charm feels a bit trivial or frivolous or like a Disney character, or whatever. But it is all of this is about convincing people and winning people over. And Kirsty, with that in mind, I, I wonder how Liz Truss could actually prioritise her appeal because. The, the markets are reacting badly to her. The party seems to be reacting badly to her. If we look at the latest um, the latest scores on the doors just in the last 12 hours or so, the latest Times YouGov poll, um, well, I mean, it's got Labour nosediving, frankly, to now a 29-point lead. Gosh, that's, that's that's a bit of a whack, isn't it, for the well, Labour Party? You should be worried here. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of prioritising who you, who you go for and how you evolve that appeal, I, that is a thankless task, it, it would seem. Uh, yes, it is. Look, you need to go with the, the most immediate threat. The most immediate threat at the moment is her own parliamentary party. Uh, and it speaks to uh, where do you and how do you carry your authority as a prime minister? Right? So it comes in three, in three ways. It comes within the legitimacy with which you came to office. It comes within your competence in office. And it comes within your ability to communicate values and show that you share the values of the people that voted for you. So in essence, if you take Boris for argument's sake, you know, uh, Boris had a legitimacy born out of a 80 seat majority securing that. 
So in some ways, he could afford to handle his parliamentary party how he liked, uh, because whilst people within the parliamentary party might not have liked it, he was a proven winner. When he stopped being a proven winner, because Boris didn't have a particularly big caucus within the parliamentary party, it was always a very transactional relationship. So when he yeah. stopped that by fundamentally breaking um, his uh, covenant, if you like, with the public over values, uh, largely over Partygate, which is where the fracture and the poles with him and the public came and never was restored. Uh, that is when they started to break faith with him. Mm. The difficulty uh, Liz Truss has as a prime minister is that she came in and I've, and I've listened and read her own aides briefing, oh, we've got an 80-seat majority. No, you haven't. Boris secured an 80-seat majority. You inherited, I think we're now at 70, 71. Um, you inherited that, but you didn't have the majority support of your parliamentary party. You didn't even have the majority support uh, of the Conservative membership in its, in its totality. And nobody mm. has elected you. And yet they swept in... Um, with the same sort of swagger that, that, that you'd expect from someone that had secured a mandate. They then proceeded in it, you know, we are a parliamentary democracy. We don't, we don't want a, a presidential system. And so actually the job of a prime minister is to drive through and enact the manifesto on which the, the government, the government was elected. And so to break faith with that, without having a kind of foundation of legitimacy and then to, to, to cripple both the legs on which a government stands, which is competency and values, all in the space of a week, um, is, is how we've got into the mess we're in. So the immediate threat for her, sorry, this was a very long-winded way around <laughs> answering good. your question, but the immediate threat for her is around the MPs. And Oscar's yeah. right, you know, do, doing things, I mean, you have to do 22, fine. I mean, my understanding was originally it was supposed to be quasi. Um, but you have to kind of, of go into that, you know, baptism of fire. Uh, but that now starts a round of, of exactly what Oscar's talking about, which is bringing people to number 10, talking them, I presume they'll be being talked through the medium term fiscal plan um, uh, with, a, with a view to getting them back on board. You then obviously need to deliver a, a medium term fiscal plan that doesn't further spook the markets. And, there, and then, and only then, can you start to perhaps rebuild faith with the public. But it's a very, very, very long road to plough. And at the moment, mm. uh, I'm not even entirely sure that the MPs will let her get there because, the, like I say, the, the, the mood is so sulfurous. I, d I just don't think I've ever, even in 2003 with IDS, I don't think I've known a mood quite as bleak and dark as this. Wow. That is quite something. That's cheery. Isn't wow. it? That is very cheery. <laughs> Gosh, I ju it's it's just so striking to consider. I mean, even this morning, um, you know, there are suggestions about what what manoeuvrings are afoot, if indeed any. Uh, and it's in terms of forging a way through for the Conservative Party. It's it again. This is not easy because they're trying to balance electoral success or otherwise, which is going to become a reality in the not very distant future. Actually, an election's not that far away in order for a prime minister to actually make their mark um, in her time in office. So there's that on the kind of you know medium term horizon, I suppose. And then there's this this immediacy of 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 politics feels very real to people at the moment because. Everyone feels poorer and worries that that's only yeah. going to get worse. And I think sometimes with a with a government, politics can feel a bit abstract. You know, it's about 
things that perhaps don't really feel like they affect me every single day. But at this point, everybody's looking at their bank balance and going, oh my goodness, politics is real all of a sudden. Completely, Callum. And when that happens, the pressure that puts on politicians is so, so, so intense. And I think as well... The real issue with that as well, I hate this phrase in a way, but, you know, optics, you know, from a comms perspective, is that there's no real spin, (laughs) or at least there's not a lot of room for spin. Um, Because, you know, every single weekend, these MPs, exactly Kirsty's been talking about, which is probably the, present the absolute white heat of danger for the Prime Minister at the moment. They are going to their constituencies they are knocking on doors. They're doing their MP surgeries. And it's exactly those bank balances, the bills coming through the letterbox, that they are being... And of course, their caseworker inboxes, which are probably piling up that poor MP staff are having to sift through as we speak, probably. And there's no easy explanation. The explanations that have been made to the public thus far in terms of Putin and you know global... <laughs> It doesn't quite fly. And I know that there is, of course, there there is an element of truth to that. Of course, what we're experiencing is knock-on effects of COVID and a war on our continent, for God's sake. Of course, all these things are real. But it doesn't quite cut the mustard for people. They want their politicians to have more answers and, a, and, a, and they want their, their, you know, their UK members of parliament, their local MPs to be more accountable than that. It's a, it's it's such a headache, and I think really you're better. And I, I'd be really interested to kind of defer to you know Kirsty on this. And but I think you have to level with people. There has to be humility and honesty in dealing with in, in dealing with the, these economic challenges right now. You know, I saw the other day on Question Time, you know, Zahawi, who is a, I think a brilliant, brilliant asset to the government and has done a good job everywhere he's gone. But he was kind of laughed at when he, you know, he threw the Putin, you know, oh, this is because of Putin. And I think Liz mentioned it in the 1922 committee yesterday as well. And I'm sure that got a similar, <laughs> you're right there, Callum, pressing buttons. And I'm sure, and I know Liz mentioned, you know, this is all happening. Because, <laughs> this is all happening because of Putin as well. And it just doesn't fly. And I think that honesty and humility is probably what's needed, and frankness is what's needed from the government at the moment. Mm. What do you think about that then, Kirsty? Do you want to pick up on that? Frankness, honesty, I mean, it's something that actually, to credit where credit's due to Liz Truss, some of these questions that she's been asked, we, we played a couple of them earlier, you know, you're happy to be unpopular, yes, absolutely I am. In that Laura Koonsberg interview, yeah, exactly, in that, in that Laura Koonsberg interview, she did commit to the, the 45p tax rate cut or, or removal. She committed to that wholeheartedly and, and absolutely then you turned on that. But there is something about her giving clear answers. But, but what is happening is the clear answers then disappear into the mists of time because there's a change of heart. And so the whole thing becomes, well, I'm grateful for the clear answer, but actually, is it meaningless? Does it carry any weight at all? This is the most fascinating bit of this for me. People say all the time, why do politicians not give straight answers to straight questions? Right? 
you hear it all the time. It's the single biggest criticism and the single reason that people don't trust politicians is you don't give straight answers. So you can see why there was an appeal for Liz Truss, because you got clear answers. She had a clear vision for what she wanted to do for the country and for the economy. And if you asked her a straight question during the leadership contest on media or as a member of the Conservative Party, you got a straight answer. Now, the reason that politicians do not, by and large, give straight answers is because once you get in to government and you become the prime minister, reality bites and your ability to be able to deliver what you say and promise yeah. you can deliver is not necessarily in your control. It's in the control of markets or the headwinds of the, you know, of economic headwinds or an unforeseen event or your own parliamentary party and, and, and. And so actually what the prime minister has done every time she has said with, with clarity and purpose, we will do this and we won't do that. She has walked her, herself, her premiership and her government into a cul-de-sac. And the only way you can get out of a cul-de-sac is if you turn around, otherwise known as a U-turn, and you come back out again. And so actually, brand trust, if you like, which was, you know, straight talking, I'm prepared to be unpopular, I've got a vision and I'm going to deliver it and I'm bold gamble or reckless gamble, depending on where you wanted to stand on the spectrum, were all the things we said about this. But actually what you've ended up with is not just, you know, the political and economic mess we've seen now, but you've ended up with a complete erosion of this kind of straight from the hip, straight talking brand, because you've just, she's been forced into a series mm. of U-turns. In the, in the leadership contest, she said there would be no handouts for energy. There were handouts. During uh, the first days of her premiership, when after the after the budget, and she said, "I am absolutely committed to this cutting the top rate of in income tax." We U-turned. Yesterday, she did it again. Prime Minister's question time. She was asked if, if when you're looking for sixty-two billion pounds worth of of you know you've got a sixty-two billion pound black hole, how are you going to how are you going to make your maths add up? Is it going to lead to spending cuts? Give your guarantee it will not. Well, how? I mean, Oscar says this doesn't ring true. It's because the maths don't add up on it. You cannot give forty-three billion pounds worth of tax cuts, and then there'd be no yeah. knock-on consequential effects from it. Mm. So, you know, clarity in communication is, you know, is not necessarily a useful. Is it's not use, necessarily a useful tool because actually. What you find out in, you know, when you get into number 10 and you get into the realities of how you try and deliver things, you need the wiggle room. You need the room for manoeuvre. That's why politicians don't answer questions, because they're trying to give themselves that wiggle room, because they know that things aren't necessarily always mm. in their control. Mm. And, you know, the prime minister is, you know, and the, and the cabinet are right. Yes, there is a post-pandemic inflationary push everywhere. And yes, interest rates are, are rising in many, many countries to, to knock against that. But that just belies what we can all see with our own eyes, mm -hmm. which is that the mini budget was the major yeah. cause of the collapse of the pound and the spooking of the market. And that, in the minds of the public, has forever yoked whatever this premiership does now to their mortgages. And if you, how you come back from that, I just don't know, because you know, if you're looking at six, seven hundred pound a month increase in your mortgage, I listened to a woman on a radio program 
phoning and she said, look, we've gone from being worried about heating our homes this winter to actually holding on to our homes next year. Two million people will have their fixed term mortgages run out next year. And for them, in their minds now, it doesn't matter what the government says, what happens to their mortgages is a direct result of that mini budget. I wonder then if we build on that and consider the medium term fiscal plan, which is a horrible name for an important thing. And just a, just a couple of kind of brief thoughts on this, I suppose. Um, are we just expecting this, Oscar, to be just at one monumental U-turn for, the, for the, what I've seen described this morning as a hung mini budget in that it's just kind of hovering up here somewhere, in that all of that will just go away. It has to disappear because, as Kirsty was outlining, it has been so problematic that actually that is now the only way to get out of the cul-de-sac. Yeah. Well, I, I think they're already preparing the ground for U-turns right down from top to bottom on it. You know, every interview you see, every morning round, it is Kirsty's point you're seeing ministers give themselves wriggle room for what's to come. I think way back, I mean, God, it feels like a political lifetime ago that the mini budget actually happened. Um, I think that OBR report, if it had come out alongside it, despite, and they could have left in quite a lot of the dramatic um, measures that were announced, but alongside a report, that would have helped a little bit. Although now they, the first mini turn, if you like, is that they're, they're now bringing forward, as we've already discussed. But then again, you're seeing ministers, they could be small guests today, kind of attacking the OBR report before it's even come out because they're um, anticipated to be less than complimentary and, 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 and pretty grim reading. Um, so in terms of the, 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 what's actually really interesting, pretty quickly, the normal rules of a U-turn have seemed to all fallen and, and kind of completely gone out the window. You know, my understanding, relatively inexperienced as I am, but my understanding was that, look, if you're going to do a U-turn, you do it really sharp, you do it nice and quickly. You know, the commentariat and, you know, maybe backbench MPs and, and the party, they won't like it. Labour will latch onto it. But generally speaking, the general public, if it's for the right cause and the right reason, they will accept a U-turn and be like, oh, you know, you know what? Yeah, you know, we've got where we need to get to. Bit embarrassing, but all cool. We move on. But it, I, I don't. <laughs> I think this government have slightly rewritten what a U-turn is and, and the dynamics of it. I think it, it's it, it, even if they prepare the ground um, and they make concessions to certain fractions of the of, the, of kind of rebel MPs on, on, on all these separate issues from, that have stemmed from the mini budget. I still don't know, it's still not going to fly. Mm. So again, and as a comms professional, I'm probably holding my hands up and admitting my own <laughs> deficiencies here. But the U-turns that need to happen without damage, I I genuinely, you know, that you can scrape the car, but it, it just feel, I literally do not know how they get through it without writing the car off. Mm. And, you know, maybe Kirsty has a better idea, but, but I, I don't see it. Oh, we're going to carry on the car metaphor. <laughs> Marvellous. Um, <laughs> look, well, okay, if we're going to carry on the car metaphor, I think what's actually happened is that Liz has taken the car, put it in uh, the cul-de-sac, 
she's tried to sort of do a 28 point turn to get it round again. The parliamentary party on mass has gone right, okay, open the driver's door, taken her out and put themselves in. Said actually, we're going to decide how we get this car out of the cul-de-sac. That's what's happening here. I'm not sure that the ground being prepared is being prepared by number 10. I'm fairly sure it's being prepared by the parliamentary party, which is saying, okay, we think, you know, a nuclear, you know, it is too nuclear an option right now to replace the prime minister. I think uh, that is that is what is happening here. And a little bit like one of the reasons that there was such a delay in getting rid of uh, Boris Johnson after he no longer was an electoral asset was because they couldn't decide who to replace him with. I think there's a similar issue going on here. It cannot be Boris because he too has broken that values link values covenant if you like with with, with the public uh, whoa 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh what polls were you looking no, at know. that you know uh so he has he has he has permanently broken the values covenant with the public and i stand by that um so it cannot be him i think the 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 court of boris will not allow it to be rishi sunak um there is a precedent for replacing and having a caretaker leader um, it happened when IDS was removed and he was replaced by Michael Howard in 2003. But unless the parliamentary party can agree on someone, and at the moment I suspect, given how fractious and factional this party has become, I would be amazed if that happened. So I think what's probably happening here is they're saying, OK, bare minimum on this uh, for your survival for now is uh, that you either delay or completely junk the, the, the unfunded tax cuts, uh, and that you replace uh, your chancellor, um, and that you uh, have a reset in Oof, number 10, and I'd possibly say, yeah. the chief whip's office too. And I think this car is now being driven by the parliamentary party. I don't think it's being driven by number 10 anymore at all. Go on, Oscar. Well, I just think, you know, I, I've heard people say there is a scenario where quasi has to be a sacrificial lamb in order to save Liz. And I, because they're so joined at the hip in their thinking and they were so firmly on the same ticket uh, during the selection campaign, I I don't think you can just cut, a, a, a cut aside quasi and skip through if you're Liz. I, I I don't see that. I think that is su- just such a such a such an awful humiliation. Um, that but she, Oscar, she's not skipping I, again, through. Again, I they, don't know. They, how they've she comes put back her. From they, that. They, they've the bundled her up well, and put her in the boot of the car. That's what they've done with her. She's not skipping through this. Yeah, but the problem is, in terms of alternatives, as Kirsty was hinting at, there is that, and and again, actually, this dates back probably to when. Kirsty was with DeMay. You know, the party's had to shed its skin so many times now. And with shedding that skin, there's there is a lot of sensible top talent that has been cast aside. Uh, you know, I was speaking to, I was doing a couple of media things and I was speaking to a, a Secretary of State under Margaret Thatcher. And he was really aghast at how, how much top talent been thrown away and how inexperienced this current cabinet is the argument i guess you could make though is 
though that top talent that has been cast aside during May, well after May, Boris and now Liz, that arguably creates an environment for one of them to kind of jostle their way. Maybe a caretaker capacity. I've seen quite a lot of people talking about that kind of damage limitation until the next general election. Um, but you do, I mean, and, and as much as there is a lot of good good talent in that cabinet at the moment, it's not that experienced. I mean, how ridiculous me in my 20s talking about that. But, but, but you know, like Shaps, for example, you know, when they got, when, when they didn't let Shaps back in, I thought that was a real, real mistake. One of the government's top communicators in a crowd as well, you can send him out and he can calm things down really competent, you know, Sajid even. You know, there was just so much talent that, that that has gone. I mean, again, not everyone's cup of tea, but like someone like Dominic Raab, you know, like whatever you think, had really, really top jobs, deputy prime minister during, you know, a global pandemic. He wasn't a very gone. good one though, was he? And actually, when we talk about... I quite like I quite like Rob, but maybe I'm a <laughs> no, it's fine. You're allowed to a very You're vocal minority. <laughs> but um, when we talk about when we talk about you know the, the support work that the prime minister needs now more than ever, I, it was probably a bit of a mistake not having anyone really in her cabinet who didn't necessarily back her initially. I mean, she's brought in she's brought hands, and you've got um, Berghart's just joined today again, so you can see the steps she's making. Um, but I think that's been a, another error as well, another strategic error as well. Mm. Gosh, many, many errors to consider um, in all of this. It's so fascinating. There's so much still to happen, of course, in the next few, well, in the next couple of weeks ahead of this next fiscal event, unless Kirsty's advice is heeded and it comes forward. Who knows? Maybe we'll all be sat here next week discussing U-turns on tax cuts and whatnot. Um, I want to consider you guys, because you, you are our Whitehall sources, Okay, and you've, you know, it's so fascinating hearing the news cycle is driving the government. That's one thing we've learned today, that the most immediate threat to Liz Truss is from her party, um, that you can maybe scrape the car while you're doing a U-turn, but you're going to write it off completely if you're not too careful. These are all the considerations that we take away from today. So as well as being sources, though, you, you have been advisors. I just wonder if there is something, we might do this every week, actually, what advice you would you could give the prime minister right now is is there something is there a is there a key is there something that they're missing that Liz Truss is missing and that her perhaps young inexperienced team around her are not advising her that actually they should be Kirsty well there's all sorts of advice that starts with we wouldn't have started from where we are <laughs> um, yes. Uh, and that is, <laughs> I'd lay that disclaimer before I say anything else, right? Um, and then say, we are where we are. Um, and where we are is a right old pickle. So look, I, I used to work for uh, the great Eric Pickles. Um, and he used to have probably, I think, the best kind of view of what passes muster and what doesn't politically. And he says, look, does it pass the reasonableness test? And if it doesn't, it will not stand. Uh, and I think, you know, saying to people, we've got £43 billion worth of unfunded tax cuts. We haven't told you yet how we're going to pay for them, but trust us, we have a plan. Uh, but it doesn't, by the way, include apparently uh, cutting public spending. Um, I think this 
doesn't you know it doesn't add up to people so i think my, my personal advice right now would be very firmly bring forward your plan for how you are going to do this and if as i suspect and a lot of people suspect uh that this is not actually achievable without huge public spending cuts which are not sustainable at this stage you're going to have to 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 ditch your plan and uh you know, if that means, you know, if that means humiliation, then 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 so be it, in essence, you know, you can rip a plaster quickly, or you can rip a plaster slowly. But if you can't pay for this, you're going to have to put it on the back burner. It's as simple as that. And the only question, the only question now for this government is how much pain do you want to take and endure before you accept that? Yeah. And Oscar, with that in mind, then you're a bit of advice, because if what we're kind of talking about today feels like a shift, really, from a conversation about whether Liz Truss should go to actually when she goes, it, it is kind of the, the, the feeling is that if the party is agitating, if the public is agitating, and if there's concern about what this medium term fiscal event means, what advice is there that you can cut through with today? Well, I, I still think, I mean, maybe I'm a really blind optimist, but I still think there is a, a way through for Liz. Um, I think to add to, you know, Kirsty's absolutely right. Bring forward the plan. Don't leave a vacuum. Absolutely kind of in ferocious levels of detail, detail exactly where, where the tax cuts are going to be funded. Every single bullet point of the plan needs to be, absolutely watertight and on top of that i think the other advice i would probably give is when you talk about your plans for the economy and growth 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 try and communicate it in a way that normal people understand get out that westminster speak it doesn't because because ultimately that will appease the mps who want you gone because those mps who want you gone they're just reflecting their constituents' fears and anger. So if you connect with the constituents and you actually break down, what does my economic plan, now it's been brought forward, now it's all detailed, maybe there are a couple of U-turns, you know, whatever, but whatever, whatever. Here's the plan, it's all detailed, and I'm communicating it to you in a way that will actually, you'll be able to see affected in your day-to-day -day lives. What does this mean for a working family on X amount of money who work, you know, Y amount of hours a week? What does that mean for them? That that hasn't happened yet, and I think that was a bit of an initial mistake. You know, growth, growth, growth is the mechanism to ensuring people's lives feel fairer and better during very difficult times. But it's just the mechanism. Like you, that doesn't really need to leave Whitehall. Communicate actually the 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 end result, the effect, and your vision in that way. And maybe maybe people can get on board. Maybe nerves will be calmed about those MPs because actually in their caseworker inboxes they're seeing people cool off. They're kind of going, oh, you know that that was a pretty you know in terms of the energy package of support, you know that was pretty big. And okay, now we can you know markets are calming down a little bit now. They've seen a fully a fully detailed plan. And then maybe there's a way through through this. Well, thank you both so much. Whether there is a way through this for Liz Truss and her government, of course, remains to be seen and, to be fair, might play out 
a lot more quickly than than Liz Truss could even imagine. Thank you for finding us, finding this podcast as well. Please tell your friends, share it with those political nerds who want this sort of insight every week. And let us know what you think as well, actually. All feedback is welcome, although we'll we'll quite simply just delete the negative ones. But you can email us anytime. The email address is hello at whitehallsources.com. Find us on social media, just search for Whitehall Sources for clips from the podcast on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok, and for even more bonus content as well. We love having you there. There is so much to talk about in politics. We will keep bringing you this insight, this insider view on all that is happening right now. We will arrive in your podcast feed every Thursday. Thanks to Kirsty and to Oscar. I'm Callum McDonald. Goodbye. Whitehall Sources is only just getting started. Thank you so much for being here with us. We wouldn't be here without the support of Resident Hotels. Their city centre locations in London and Liverpool give you the perfect base to launch your city visit. Click residenthotels.com for more info.